May the peace of our Lord be with you. Have you ever noticed over the many years that we as a church have followed the liturgical calendar that Trinity Sunday is the only Sunday of the year on which we celebrate a doctrine of the church? Advent, Lent, Christmas tide, Easter tide are all seasons which frame the events of Christmas and Easter. Epiphany, Baptism of the Lord Sunday, Transfiguration of the Lord Sunday, Ascension of the Lord Sunday, they all mark events in the life of Jesus. Pentecost celebrates the event that birthed the church. But Trinity Sunday, Trinity Sunday lifts up for our attention a way of thinking and believing about God that is rooted in scripture but that only began to come to articulation for the church late in the second century. And as an official teaching of the church, the doctrine of the Trinity was not adopted until the late fourth century at the Council of Constantinople. And since that day, if not before, attempts at understanding much less explaining or describing the Trinity, have confounded nearly everyone, including theologians and preachers. Earlier this week, Chuck told me the story of an old monastery in England, which has been closed since 1539, but whose guidebook for tourists reads, quote, here the monks gathered every Sunday to hear a sermon from the abbot, except on Trinity Sunday, owing to the difficulty of the subject. <laughs> in trying to explain how God can be three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, we quickly encounter the limits of our language and our understanding. So perhaps it would be better to say not that Trinity Sunday celebrates a doctrine, but that Trinity Sunday celebrates our limits, the limits of language and the limits of our comprehension of the immense mystery and majesty of God. In that case, Trinity Sunday does something that few Sundays on the liturgical calendar are capable of doing. It inspires restraint and humility, which are good practices for all who follow Jesus, at least according to James 1.19, where we are encouraged to be quick to listen and slow to speak. What then are we to say? about these things. Fortunately, we can exercise both restraint and humility and still say what may be the most important thing about the Trinity for both our life with God and our life together, and that is this. Over and over, the scriptures insist that God is not a solitary 
unmoved and immovable being, a monad, as philosophers might like to say. Instead, the scriptures show us that God's very existence and essence is social. It's communal and relational. Sisters and brothers, that is what is at the heart of the doctrine of the Trinity, is our belief that God is social. Consider Jesus' baptism. As Jesus comes up from the water, the Gospels tell us that the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven is heard saying, This is my Son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. God and God the Spirit together, blessing God the Son. Or look at last Sunday's Gospel lesson and today's Gospel lesson. In both places, Jesus comforts his disciples by assuring them that the Holy Spirit, who shares in the life of the Father and the Son, will come and will continue the work among them that he started and guide them just as he has. And finally, consider Matthew 28, 19, which contains one of the two explicit Trinitarian references in the New Testament. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus instructs his core group of disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Friends, as much as I value and like to use the Trinitarian formula, creator, redeemer, sustainer, naming God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit underscores their relationality. They exist in relationship. One that Jesus tells us is marked by love and intimacy. So in reflecting this week about how and why all of this heady stuff matters for life on the ground where we are, I couldn't help but think about a group that I led about five years ago at the Yellow Church called Circle of Friends. Circle of Friends was modeled after a group in Iowa called Beyond Welfare whose goal was to create spaces where people who live in poverty, which they defined widely as a lack of money, friends, or meaning, where people who live in poverty could find support and build friendships and share knowledge and resources. As for our Circle of Friends meeting, which met twice a month for about 18 months, the group included residents of Mid-City, residents of North Midtown and South Jackson, as well as people both from Northminster and other congregations. Regardless of the makeup of the group each meeting, the common sentiment expressed after our meetings were over was joy and relief and encouragement because people found helpful being part of a positive, supportive, and non-judgmental group. Leading the group opened my eyes to how isolating it can be to live in poverty, 
but it also underscored for me the life-giving power of communities where people can meet each other just as human beings and not based on the labels that we wear. I also thought this week about a retreat series called Courage to Lead, in which I've been participating through the Center for Courage and Renewal. In those retreats, we practice a particular way of doing soul work called a circle of trust. As part of the agreement for being in a circle of trust, at each meeting, we vow not to try and fix or save each other. We vow not to give advice and not to set each other straight. Instead, we do our best to honor the soul of each person through reverent listening and by asking open and honest questions intended to help each person explore his or her own inner terrain. What this has created for all of us is a community of extraordinary gentleness and compassion. A community that respects each person's individual journey, but that does not leave him or her to journey alone. And in that sense, it too has been life-giving and grounding. And finally, I thought about you. About this family of faith, both the large community and the smaller communities within which people have found and are finding friendships and support and care and growth and strength. You and I have been together for a long time, for a little over 11 years, and I have seen this community love and serve people both within our walls and beyond our walls in remarkable, life-giving ways. What connects these three groups for me is the recognition that each of these communities, Circle of Friends, Circle of Trust, Northminster, is a reflection of the God who exists as three in one. Now I don't mean to idealize us or any community, because all human communities are limited and imperfect, but good communities, communities that honor the soul, that cultivate caring, that allow for expressions of giftedness, can help us live into who we were created to be. In the same way that creating art or music or food or order out of chaos makes the image of our Creator God shine within us. Sharing in community can make the image of our triune God shine and shimmer both within us and among us. Friends, over, over time and through these experiences of community, including here at Northminster, I've learned that I have a tendency to isolate myself and guard myself against the, what I perceive to be the threats of being vulnerable. 
And I don't tend to, at least not naturally, to rely on the riches that community has to offer. Since I've realized that about myself and since I've been able to name it and recognize it, I am constantly now reminding myself that I am made in the image of a God whose very essence is relationship and community and mutuality. And when I am not offering myself to community or letting community offer its gifts to me, I am not living fully into who God created me to be. Of course, that is, that's a growing edge that's specific to my life. I can only speak for myself. You may be on a different side of things. You may be the soul waiting for people like me to come out of hiding so you can initiate and cultivate those bonds of relationships. If so, you and I need each other. And that's something else we can learn from the Trinity, too. We need each other. If we are to live fully into the image of God, we need each other if this family of faith is to live fully into the image of God. So here on Trinity Sunday, we do indeed celebrate the doctrine of the church. But for all its complexities, we see that it also carries important insights about the nature of the God in whose image we are made. We celebrate the limits of our language and of our comprehension, and yet we realize there are a few things we can say and see with restraint and humility that do not at all diminish our awe at the mystery and majesty of God. But most of all, on Trinity Sunday, we celebrate the power of life-giving, soul-deepening community found eternally in the Godhead, overflowing into our lives, bubbling up out of our lives, if we let it, inviting even, or maybe especially, the most reticent among us into life together. I guess you could say then that on Trinity Sunday there's a lot to celebrate, which is pretty good for a subject that's been called the most perplexing teaching of the church. We should think about that. We should think about the fact that there's a lot to celebrate. Just in case, like that monastery in England, we ever consider canceling the sermon on Trinity Sunday. Amen. Oh,